Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the Theapologetics Podcast, episode 56, Everlasting God. This is something like the tenth time that I've tried to record this monologue and, and, and try to get across some of the things that are on my mind. And I've been doing a horrible job, so I'm not even going to try anymore. I'm just going to say this. It's been three weeks since the last episode of the show. I know that's longer than usual, and I apologize for that. Um, I don't intend for that to be the case moving forward. There are reasons for it that I've tried to explain in the previous nine recordings uh, or attempts at recording. And um, But I'm not going to try to do that anymore. I'm just going to make this short and sweet, and then we'll move into the promo and then into the interview. Uh I don't intend for the for the frequency to be any less than one episode per two weeks moving forward. Um, but there might be lapses occasionally, and, but I'll try to keep those to a minimum if you're somebody who enjoys this show. I've got an episode lined up next week, uh, another interview. Um, so if you've been frustrated by the two weeks or three weeks that you've had to wait for this episode, hopefully that you won't experience that much in the future. Now, today's promo is for Greg Kokel's Stand to Reason. This is the show your pastor warned you about. Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here, Stand to Reason, and I'm so glad you joined me today. Looking forward to three hours of conversation, reflection, and uh, giving you a piece of my mind on the most important things that we can be thinking about. And yes, I think thinking is critical, even though feeling is part of it. I don't know if I've said this before on the air regarding Christianity. Pardon me. But uh, emotions are what makes life delicious, and uh, careful thinking is what makes life safe. You know, if you're like me, you're not going to believe, uh, you're not going to agree with everything that Greg Kokel says or believes. But in most areas, we agree, and I think that he does a great job of explaining and defending those positions. Um, you know, and overall, his show just really gets you critically thinking, which is, which is really important. Uh, as he said there at the end of the promo, um, emotions are what make life, life delicious, but careful thinking is what makes life safe. So if you want to listen to Stand a Reason, you can listen live Sundays from 2 to 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on uh, 740 a.m. if you're in the California, California area. Otherwise, you can listen online at that time, um, and I've got links in my show notes on how to do that. Uh, and you can go to str.org and subscribe to the podcast to listen to the shows a day after they air. Um, there's not many people seemingly more winsome and gracious than Greg, um, even though, like I said, you might disagree with certain things. So I would definitely encourage you to listen to the show and take advantage of some of his resources. Uh, and with that, let's just go ahead and move into today's interview with Dr. Glenn Peoples. Today I'm joined once again by Dr. Glenn Peoples, host of the Say Hello to My Little Friend podcast out of New Zealand, to talk about Christology, philosophy of mind, and the crucifixion of Christ. Thanks so much for joining me today, Glenn. Chris, you're very welcome. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks. 
Well, now, last time we talked, um, you pointed out that although philosophy of mind is something that you enjoy thinking and talking about, it's not really your area of expertise. So what, what is it that you've been up to in what has been nearly a year since last we talked? Uh, quite a few things. Um, I mean, philosophy of mind has still been coming up in my, in my discussions, but I've had, I've had a couple of conversations with, uh, you may know Brian Orton from Apologetics 315, uh, and, and also in other forums, not with him, on my main area of interest, which is the relationship between God and morality. And that went really well. I've, I've really enjoyed delving into that. Um, the other area where, um, where I have a bit of notoriety, I suppose, is, is the question of hell and the doctrine of annihilationism in particular. Um, I've had some really good dialogues on that as well. I, I did write... And, and I know you've seen this, an open letter um, yeah. to those who don't share my view, basically complaining about some of the things that I see going on in, in the debate. And that generated a lot of attention, which I'm, I'm glad. I mean, it was it was written to do that. Um, but also, recently up in Auckland, at the other end of the country, which is not really that far, uh, thinking in American terms, it's you know, the same state pretty much. Mm. Uh, I've be, I was doing some public talks on, well, one anyway, a, a sort of a public forum on religion in the public square. That was the area of, of research in my PhD, and that was really enjoyable. But lately, something I've been getting into a lot more, both in, in public speaking and also writing, is on the resurrection of Jesus, which is, has more of an apologetics focus. So that's... I've been doing a lot of things, and I've been really enjoying them too. Well, that's cool. What, what about the, What's in store for the future? Do you have any upcoming plans, hopes, aspirations, that kind of thing? Uh, yeah, I want a job. <laughs> well, no, I mean, I, I have a job, but you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still plugging away at trying to get things published and, and, and trying to get some sort of teaching position somewhere. And that's still, that's still my aspiration. I mean, that may change, but we'll see. Yeah. Well, now I'm curious, have you received any feedback since last time you appeared on my show? I, I haven't gotten much, uh, except for, you know, this friend of mine that you're aware of who has these concerns about physicalism that we're going to be talking about. But, but beyond mm. that, have, have you received any feedback? Not directly as a result of the show. Um, I mean, just in ongoing conversations that I have about the issues that we were discussing last time. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and, and this is what I always say because I, 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 I very rarely encounter anyone going the other way, saying, you know, look, I'm, as a Christian, I, I became convinced of physicalism, but, you know, I'm, I'm really attracted to dualism now. I, I continue to see a, a steady flow in, in my direction, and that's good and bad. It's good because I know that a lot of people are really reconsidering the issue from a biblical point of view, which is fantastic, mm. uh, but it's also bad because I know that there are a lot of people who do so for cultural reasons, who... You know, let's, we can't really defend these traditional stuffy old ideas. We need to get modern. And that's not at all the kind of mindset that I want people to approach it with. But, um, I don't, I don't know what people make specifically of my contribution, my very meager contribution to the issue, but I'm encouraged by the general movement that I do see. Sure. Well, you know, I can tell you that, uh, as you're aware, I had Joel Green on my show uh, a while back to talk about the mm. issues we're going to be talking today. And, um, you know, I loved the interview. I had a great time doing it, but there were some of us that were um, less than satisfied <laughs> by his responses. And, and one of the things that I received from at least a couple of people was that they wish that you had been the one to have that conversation. And I only say that because, <laughs> you know, you're, you're right. We don't know just how much your, your contribution to this discussion has really impacted people, but it's at least been uh, something that people value more highly than certain others, <laughs> which is, you know... Those are big shoes to fill. I mean, Joel Green is a giant when it comes to biblical theology. I mean, mm -hmm. really good biblical theology. 
Um, I mean, I know he's not a philosopher, and, and I, I, I think what you may be describing is the fact that some of your listeners like philosophy, mm. which is cool. I mean, I like philosophy too. Well, yeah, but still, I, I guess, um, even, even from a biblical perspective, and, and maybe this was just a matter of time. Maybe it was a matter of time limitations. I was really hurried, uh, to, to, uh, to get the question in toward the end of that interview, and, and, uh, you know, we're going to spend more time today. And so maybe that's the explanation. But still, even from a biblical perspective, you and I spent much more time diving into the scriptures when we talked last time than, um, than Joel and I did. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's perhaps because of his qualifications and experience that he's more cautious than I am. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know when it's dangerous. I just jump on in. Fair enough. Well, in the, like I said, I didn't have a lot of time to, issue, to uh, address this issue in that interview. I'm, I'm going to go more slowly. And what I'd like to do is really sort of set the stage uh, before we discuss the doctrines which intersect to present this seeming problem. So, so to do that. For those who might not have listened to our previous interviews, or or Joel's even, can you summarize for us physicalism, um, how it is that it differs from more traditional views? Yeah, I'll, I'll summarize by basically painting two pictures of human nature. Traditional dualism, and I guess dualism like physicalism could be construed in a variety of ways, but the dominant dualistic view of human nature that I see in traditional models of Christianity is that human beings can exist with or without a body, that our minds are grounded in some immaterial substance that lives on as a conscious person after the body has died. Mm. Um, whereas the body uh, dies, returns to the ground, is not essential to our identity. The, if, you, uh, if you don't my, mind me, if you don't mind me interjecting yeah. to give to give an example of this, uh, I was just listening to a, a show that I really appreciate. His name is Greg Kokel, um, mm. and he, and he, you know, there are certain things I disagree with, and, and one of the things that. Uh, he said in a recent episode, um, really addressed what you just described, because what he said is that uh, humans are, they have a body, but they're not their body, and they're kind of like, they're kind of like somebody who is trapped inside their car, and the only way that they can get around yeah. is by driving their car, but as soon as that car is, you know, destroyed, they're free to roam about, you know, without their car. Yeah, and that's straight from the apostle uh, uh, C.S. Lewis, <laughs> who said, um, he said, put it this way, you do not have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. Mm. That's a direct quote. Okay. Uh, physicalism, by contrast, says, no, you are what you see when you look at yourself. You are an organic creature made by God as part of the physical universe. That is what you are. Uh, so basically, it can also be construed as, as a denial that there is no extra substance added to you to make you a full human being. You are a physical full human being. That's, that's weak. It's perfectly legitimate to think of people that way. Now, physicalism is not, um, at least physicalism with, with regard to philosophy of mind, is not the much more ambitious thesis of metaphysical naturalism or metaphysical physicalism, that physical stuff is the only stuff that exists at all. Hmm. Um, someone raised that to me recently, said, but doesn't physicalism rule out the idea of God as a non-material being? <laughs> no. Uh, I mean, I mean, if you construed physicalism to apply to absolutely everything, then sure. But, I mean, all of us are physicalists with respect to some things. You know, you believe in physical apples. You believe yes. in physical rocks. Most of us believe in physical animals. I'm just saying, well, we're in that category as well. Right. And what are the implications when it comes to the so-called intermediate state? It, it simplifies things rather drastically because there really isn't an intermediate state. Uh, you are and remain a dead thing. You, know, <laughs> you don't have any conscious life from the time that you die until, um, and as a Christian, obviously, I believe that the resurrection of the dead is real, until the resurrection of the dead. You are simply dead for the interim. 
Okay. Now, Joel, when I interviewed him, he, he was more or less comfortable with the term physical, physicalism, but he preferred the term monism. Now, strictly speaking, I, I guess physicalism and monism are not the same thing, but it does seem to me that all physicalists are, by definition, monists, and it would surprise yeah. me to find a monist who's not a physicalist. So I guess I, the question I have for you is, is there a sense in which we should be careful not to conflate the meanings of these words? They don't mean the same thing. I mean, they can, they can usually be applied to the same people, but they don't mean the same thing. You said you'd be surprised to find a monist who's not a physicalist. I'm not. Buddhists, for example, many of them believe that the physical world is an illusion. And oh. that the only thing that exists is spiritual. So they are monists, but they are definitely not physicalists. Uh, similarly, philosophical idealists who believe that uh, the mental is all that exists and not the physical. Well, they, they are monists, but they're definitely not physicalists. But, so they don't mean the same thing. But I'm happy with either term because, in fact, I, I am a monist uh, when it comes to human nature. And, in fact, I am a physicalist. And when I talk about being a monist, I'm saying there is only one, you know, monos, whatever, only one substance, namely the physical one. Okay. Now, in preparing for this discussion, I happened upon a bunch of websites which will say something like this. To die does not mean an end of existence. Death is separation. So, so to what extent, if any, does death mean to cease to exist uh, according to physicalism? And, and this is going to come up a little bit later. And, and the reason I ask is because whether talking about physicalism or annihilationism, traditionalists often seem to make a big deal out of phrases like cease to exist, even though many physicalists and annihilationists I've talked to don't feel that that's exactly what they're putting forward. So what does this idea of cessation of existence have to do with physicalism? Yeah. I mean, it, it, as with a lot of things, it depends what you mean by cease to exist. I mean, I think the Bible talks about, about us ceasing to be when we die. But it's not speaking to us in terms of Newtonian physics. You know, it's not... It doesn't require that there is nothing of you that remains, you know, to literally cease to exist. It seems to be a, a vast overstatement of what of what I believe in, in terms of of, of death. Mm-hmm. I mean, as a physicalist, I'm happy with the idea that I will continue to exist after I am dead, but I will be dead. Okay. <laughs> you, can bury, you, you can put me in a coffin. You can bury me. Now, whether or not you will continue to exist just depends on what you mean by you. I mean, if you are someone who construes a person strictly in terms of their function, then no, I won't exist because I won't continue to function. If you construe people ontologically, then yes, I will continue to exist because there will be something that remains. So, I mean, I don't, I'm happy either way. It just depends on context and, and what you really mean. And for any given uh, scenario, we can talk about it on a case by case basis. Okay. Does this person still exist? If so, in what sense and in what sense do they not? Well, there's a sense in which they do. There's a sense in which they don't. Okay. Well, I suspect this is going to come up toward the end of the, the interview. Um, so the question, I guess I would ask, what about a person whose body has for, you know, 3000 years long ago decayed away? Does right. that person so a person exist? whose body you've annihilated? Let's say, um, no, they don't exist. Okay, <laughs> that's, that's pretty simple. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, if we although were... I should stri- hang on, I should yeah, yeah. probably say actually, there are physicalists, although I, I treat I regard their position as a little unusual, who don't share that view. Um, they would say that when a person dies, um, they can exist in some sort of interim state, but it's an unusual kind of quasi-physical. Uh, intermediate state. And so they would say, look, if you annihilate that person's body, um, they still exist with God in some way, but it's not in a disembodied way. Now, I find that quite unusual. <laughs> but they would simply say, no, they still physically exist, in which case you haven't really annihilated their body. 
Okay. Well, we'd have to do a whole other show about that, so we'll we'll <laughs> we'll pass over that one. But but so let, let's talk about Jesus then. If we were to talk simply about Jesus as a man, in, in case it's not clear to anybody who's listening, what happened to him when he died and until the resurrection, according to a physicalist view? Well, I mean, we are kind of getting ahead of ourselves, but let me say as a kind of preempt to what what I'm going to say later, because I do have a lot more planned to say sure. about it. I believe that Jesus continued to exist in the sense that I think is important. I also think that God preserved him and that God brought him back to life. And that only makes sense if there is a him in question. Okay, but but as you've described the difference between physicalism and, and dualism, um, what, what you're saying, what physicalists are saying about the man Jesus, if we don't yet talk about his divine nature, which we're going to get to in a moment, is that yeah. is that as a man he was utterly dead and unconscious and unaware for those three days, at least as a man. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that is what I would say. Now, if if I held to a dualist view of the person, so if I held that the person was really the immaterial conscious mind, and yet I still said that Jesus ceased to function and be conscious when he died, then I would have to say that he ceased to exist. Because I've just right. said that the thing that I believe the person is no longer exists. But you know, I don't hold to a, a dualist conception of persons. Right. If you believe that the person is a, is a physical thing, and then as long as the physical thing exists, you can say that they still exist. Right. I understand. Well, let's talk some Christology then. Um, at this mm. point, it doesn't seem to me that physicalism should be all that controversial. I know it is, but I don't think it should be. Uh, but, but the controversy is going to come up in a little bit. And, and it's in part because of the fact that he's not only a human being, and, and that can complicate things. So summarize for us what the Bible says about what we call the incarnation, about the, the nature or natures of Christ. Um, in historical terms, and, I, and the reason I'm, I'm putting it that way is that I do have some things planned to say about the, about the biblical material shortly, but in historical terms, and this is what I affirm as well, um, when we say that Jesus has a human nature and a divine nature, I mean, a divine nature and a human nature, or a nature at all, is not an object. You know, mm. It's not a thing that you can reach out and touch. That's a way of saying that this one person, and it's essential that we're only dealing with one person, one conscious entity, is at the same time fully divine, and fully human, and, and this has been important historically as well, that is humanity is not as divinity, and that is divinity is not as humanity. He really does have two natures that are not the same. Okay. I think scripture affirms that as well. I think there are numerous biblical proofs that Jesus is, is truly divine. Uh, I won't enumerate them here. I will assume that you grant that point already. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I think it's clearly a given that he was truly human. I mean, he was a descendant of David. He was of the house of David. It was essential that he be human uh, for, for his messianic role to be complete. And this isn't a, a, a co. This isn't like a, um, a hybrid kind of nature of human slash divine. I mean, like you said, this is truly a fully human and fully divine, not a mix of the two. Yeah. Right. His human nature didn't become divine, and his divine nature didn't become human. He retained them both at the same time. At the same time, you cannot separate them. So, I mean, the historically orthodox terminology is to say that they are inseparable, but they are never confused. And by confused, that means mixed or or. Exactly. It's to, it would be to say, for example, that his divine nature became human when he became uh, incarnate. That that would be kind of combining the two natures into one. Okay. 
Now, obviously, there's more that could be said there, and I'm sure we're going to get into some of that. But there's one more doctrine that needs introducing as we set the stage, and that's the Trinity. Um, what, yeah. what sort of God does the Bible present to us? Is it a unipersonal Unitarian God like the Arian, Socinians, and Oneness Pentecostals believe? Is it a, a, a plurality of gods like the Mormons might admit but not admit or, or, or something else? Um, in broad terms, it is a Trinity. I mean, you've got one God and only one God. The Bible is emphatic on that. You've got three persons. You've got the Father, you've got the Son, you've got the Holy Spirit, who I think are quite clearly presented as personal beings. Mm. And yet each one of them is God. And each one of them always was God. Uh, so you haven't got some kind of modalism thing where, where a person is shifting between roles. So I think Trinitarianism is basically what the Bible teaches. I mean, there are different ways of presenting Trinitarianism, and I don't think you have to be wed to any particular one of those, as long as you hold the basic facts. One, there is only one God. Uh, there are three Two, there are three persons who are God, and they've always been God. And I think that's the heart of Trinitarian theology. Okay, and, and you know, when we talk about the, the, the Son being both divine and human, that divine nature that he has is the same divine nature um, as is shared by the Father and the Holy Spirit, correct? Absolutely. So when we say Jesus is divine, we're using the word divine and in just the same way we would if we said the Father is God, the Father okay. is divine. So it's not a different kind of divine nature at all. Okay, because that's going to come into play, I think, a, a little bit later, and, and I'll be interested in how this cashes out. But um, it always comes into play with this one. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, well, we'll we'll wait till that comes around. But you know, I, I think we've set the stage pretty well. But now, what this means, and, and hopefully, this is starting to become clear to some of my listeners who um, may not, who may be more wise than I was when we first talked, <laughs> which is we we've got to account for the divine nature of Christ and what happened in that respect during the time that he was in the tomb. This this person that is Christ isn't just a man, he's also God. And and so as I suggested to Dr. Green when I talked to him, it seems to me, and you can I'm gonna ask you to correct me if I'm wrong about this, that if physicalism is true, there are two possibilities when it comes to the divine nature. Either God the Son as God and that's a phrase I'm going to use a lot because I don't I just don't know how else to put it. Remained mm. remained alive and conscious while his human body lay dead in a tomb, or he died even as God, and the whole person of Jesus, divine and human, became as non-living and as unconscious as his body appeared to be. Do you think that this is a fair assessment of the two options? Would, would you nuance in them further or, or add anything to the list? Oh, I think I think that's pretty good. I, I don't see what else there is, unless you were to maintain something like his humanity survived, but his deity didn't. But you know, I don't see the motivation for, for a bizarre view like that. So, yeah, I think you're right. Those are really the only options we have. Okay. Now let's talk about the first possibility, uh, well first, th that while his body lay dead in the tomb, God the Son, as God, remained alive and conscious. Uh, one listener of mine suggested at my blog recently that the Bible doesn't seem to militate against this possibility, um, as he put it, that he died in his human nature but not in his divine nature. Now if that's not, yeah. if that's not your view, um, why not? Well it's not my view. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, why not? Now this is, this will take us into a bit of a, but it's not a diversion into scripture. It's, it's, it's a journey into scripture. This is why I believe these things. So for me, and this is, this is the way that I want, and I'm, I'm pretty confident that you feel the same way. This is the way that I want to get more Christians thinking about these issues. The way to approach the issue. See, first of all, I'm going to tell you how to approach it, and then I'm <laughs> going to approach it myself. Okay. The way to approach the issue is to put together all the things that scripture says. This is the first thing we should do anyway. Put together all the things that Scripture says about the person of Jesus and his death. Then we say to the systematic theologian, or to ourselves if we are a systematic theologian who wants to find a model of Christology, okay, here's your raw data. 
you make it work and come up with something compatible with all of this. Because I worry, and this is going to be a worry that permeates many of my comments, mm. I worry that sometimes Christians get it the other way around. They start out with a complex and very finely specified model of Christology that's been handed to them, and then they rule out any reading of Scripture that doesn't fit the model. And mm. they don't just rule it out. Um, they rule it out absolutely as indubitably wrong, and not just wrong, but heretical and damnable. Right. Uh, that's just not how I think Christians should do theology. I mean, don't get me wrong. Yes, it's possible to fall into a very serious error as far as the Christian faith goes when it comes to our view of Christ. We have to be careful to get it within the parameters of what's acceptable. Hmm. But we go wrong when we fall afoul of the biblical data. That's the stuff that makes us wrong. Uh, refined models of Christology should be pieced together with a real sense of humility, a real awareness that we are engaging in speculation, and necessarily so. I mean, there's nothing wrong with speculation, but we are engaging in speculation when we go further than what the Scripture says. We're creating a model that, as far as we can see, makes the best sense of the data, which is great, but it's the data itself that we're supposed to be trying to be faithful to, not the model after we've created it. Yeah. Uh, our model might, in fact, not be perfect. It might be wrong and in need of modification to make sure that it better matches the data. So it bothers me when somebody whose concerns are first and foremost with their Christological model, when they reject what I find in the biblical data, and they basically try to push the problem onto me. You know, But what about this theological implication? Right, or this oh, creed. Look, so I've got to solve the problem before they will accept the biblical data, but it's not my problem. You know, it seems to me that it should be the problem for the person with the theology. You know, I'm quite happy to say, yeah, what about that implication? Let me know how that implication fares, but don't reject the biblical data because it has that implication. If it has that implication, then it has that implication. Just wear it. You know, that's okay. It, it's our it's our task as believers to just accept the implications of Scripture. Fair enough, but, but just to interject briefly before you yeah. um, do exactly what you just said you were going to do, yeah. um, it is at least possible that some of these models that people bring into the text with them are based on legitimate interpretations of other scripture, right? I mean, yes. we, we shouldn't discount that these, we shouldn't immediately discount these models any more than we should immediately assume that they're, you know, going to override whatever data we're about oh, to yeah. look at. And when I say scripture, I mean all of scripture, you know, to be as, as widely informed by the complete witness of, of scripture as okay. possible. I don't. I, w I would never say, look, I've got an interpretation of this verse, and you've got to make your model fit my interpretation of this verse. I mean, that's just as bad as, as what I was describing. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So go on. Yeah. Sorry to inter interrupt. But it's not my. It's not my view, certainly, that um, you can have uh, the continued life and consciousness of the sun while his human body was dead. I, I don't think that's possible. Okay. Um, I think it's ruled out by what the Bible says about Jesus' death. And what um, is that? Uh, quite a lot. <laughs> I mean, just uh, think, I mean, the first one that comes to mind, just because it's so vivid and bold, is what Paul wrote to the Philippians, where he says to them, and this is primarily not, not doctrinal instruction that he's giving them, it's primarily moral instruction, teaching them to be humble people, but he ties theology into it, and he says to them, I want you to have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but made himself nothing, taking the form, it's the same word there, taking, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So just as Jesus had the form of God, so also, without equivocation, he took the form of man. 
and not just any man, a mere servant making himself nothing and dying, and not just any death, but the most shameful death that you could imagine. Mm. Now, that's a, a, a huge piece of theology to, to offer in just a few sentences like that. In fact, it's really one... I oh, know. Actually, I don't know how many sentences it was in Greek, but I know that Paul had a nasty <laughs> habit of of putting so much into really long sentences. But, but it's a huge thing to say. Now, if this wasn't the Apostle Paul speaking, if this was a 21st century physicalist speaking, if this was me speaking, saying that this person who really was God, this divine person, did not cling to his status but became nothing and really died, it would be called heresy. Now, I know that because I have been called a heretic for saying exactly that. Right. I just didn't quote Paul. People didn't know who I was quoting. I just said this, and I've been accused of, of, of being a heretic. Now, given the very straightforward, unashamed, kind of embarrassingly so, unqualified way in which Paul says these things, I don't think that he would have had time for anyone writing back to him from Philippi saying, wait, wait, wait a minute, Paul. When you say that Jesus, who was God, as you just finished saying in your letter to us, became a human and was belittled all the way to the point of death. You, you didn't really mean that he died, right? Not the person. You must have meant that he took a body and allowed the body, or took a human nature and allowed the human nature to die. Surely, you, know, you don't mean that both his natures really died, do you? I mean, if he's God, then surely there's got to be a way out of his death. So you must have meant this in some qualified sense. But Paul didn't have any problem saying what he said. He didn't have any issues saying this person, Jesus Christ, died. He didn't feel any need to qualify it or downplay it uh, so as not to offend somebody's formulation of the relationship between natures and the person of Jesus. So if you're going to construct any such formulation, it's up to you to make sure that it's compatible with strong statements like this one. And this is not the only one. There are several. It would take us all day to go through them and exegete them, so I won't. But I will just offer a brief overview of the kinds of things that Scripture says about Jesus' death. Yeah. Um, Leon Morris, who, as I understand it, was definitely no... Is he alive? I don't know. But he wrote some time ago in the 20th century, and he was no dualist. He was a very traditional guy when it came to views of human nature, views of Christ. But I think he was right to say that it wasn't just death as such that Jesus feared. I mean, we're all going to die, and we all have hope beyond this. Here was the righteous one, the righteous one, the only righteous one who was about to endure death as the very wages of sin. Hmm. And Paul connected Jesus' crucifixion with him being cursed and cut off by God. You know, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He said, you know, God's son was cursed. Peter says that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross. James Dunn, I don't know if he's a physicalist or not. No idea. But he's one of the greatest New Testament scholars that I'm familiar with anyway. He explained the way that Paul thought of a sacrifice and a sin offering in the way that Christ's sacrifice mirrors the sacrifices of the Old Testament. And the idea with an animal sacrifice, in the Bible anyway, is that we think of our sin as being placed upon that animal, and then our sin is destroyed because the sacrifice itself is destroyed with the sin in it. And that's what happens to sin bearers. And then this is what James Dunn says, turning to the, the person of Christ. He says, and I quote, had there been a way for fallen man to overcome his fallenness, Christ would not have died. But Christ, man, that's with a capital M, died because there is no other way for man, any man. His death is, is, is an acknowledgement that there is no way out for fallen man except through death. No answer to sinful flesh except through its destruction 
in death. Man could not be helped other than through his own annihilation. As for, I mean, that's, that's kind of, um, teasing out the theological implications of, of, of the idea of Jesus as a sacrifice for sin. But as for direct statements about what happened to Jesus, I, I can't do any better than quote your previous guest, or the previous one that I've listened to anyway, <laughs> Edward Fudge. Hmm. Um, and this is what he says, and I quote, The Bible exhausts the vocabulary of dying in speaking of what happened to Jesus. He, quote, died for our sins. That's 1 Corinthians 15.3. He laid down his life, or literally laid down his suke, or as some translations would say, laid down his soul, John 10.15. He was destroyed, Matthew 27.20, or killed, Acts 3.15. Jesus compared his own death to the dissolution of a kernel of wheat in John 12.23-26. Jesus poured out his life unto death, and in doing so was numbered with the transgressors. I'll end the quote there. But if, if, just say, as I happen to say, that the biblical writers had wanted to say that this person died in a straightforward manner, then they did exactly what any reasonable person would have expected them to do. True. Um, I'll finish by, by describing the biblical picture of Jesus' death, um, uh, with some words that really captured me today, uh, by a theologian quoted by Edward Fudge, actually, but this guy's name was, is, is Marcus Bath, and he sums up what took place when Jesus died, kind of in, in a poetic way, but I think sometimes that's the, the way the Bible was written to speak to us. He says, and I quote, The earth trembles, the sun fades away, describing the events of Good Friday, of course. This is the horror of the judgment. God is silent. An eclipse of the living God, a victory of death over life, the end of all religion, all law, all justice, all morality. It is this that comes at 3 p.m. on Good Friday. A hell deeper and hotter than anything anyone might imagine has opened its maw, devoured God's Son, and become all victorious. He then adds, The judgment is adjourned at this time to reconvene day after tomorrow at the crack of dawn. (laughs) Speaking, of course, of Easter Sunday. I think that's a brilliant way of capturing it. I mean, Jesus died... The sky went dark. I don't just think that was a cosmological accident. I think it was telling us that something unbelievably shocking and sinister has just happened. True. And that the Son of God has been swallowed up by death. Yeah, and you know, there's two thoughts that I have as I listen to this that that I'm sure you would find, um, uh, that you would have some sympathy for. Number one, one of the points that maybe has gone without mentioning is that in, in these numerous places in which the Son of God is said to have died and et cetera, et cetera, there's never any um, distinction, there, there's never any point made that, well, his body died, you know, or the, or in, as a human he died. I mean, it's the Son died, right? So, so, yeah. you, so, so. It's the person. I mean, it, it, the most natural way to read this is to say the person. It's the same way you would say, John went down the street to buy some chips. Well, what aspect of John are you talking about? I mean, shut up. Come on. I mean, <laughs> this is the way we talk about people doing things. Fair enough. Um, we should, we should only ask questions like what aspect of him, uh, took part in this. If we are predisposed to think that not all of them was involved, but I see no good reason to think that. Uh, yeah, I think that's a good point. And the other thing that strikes me is that, and this is actually an argument that I've used against non-Trinitarians a number of times. Jesus said that the greatest act of love that anybody could um, could do is to give his life for his friends. And, and the question I've begun to ask myself is, if the Son of God only gave up his the, the physical part of himself, his, his body, it makes me wonder if it could really be said that he 
committed the greatest act of love that anybody could 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 commit. Would, oh, we're going to come to that. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, then we'll, we'll withhold that. Um, but but here's a question: Although you don't believe that God the Son remained alive after the crucifixion, is there a reason that we shouldn't consider this possibility orthodox? Uh, a friend of mine insists that this would be a form of Nestorianism, uh, presenting Jesus as two persons: one divine and immortal, the other one human and mortal. Would you agree with this, or do you think that there is room for this within orthodoxy? The majority of evangelical and Catholic, not that Catholics aren't necessarily evangelical, but you know what I mean. Yeah. The majority of conservative Christian theologians today that I can tell who, uh, oh, sorry, I, I mean dualists, Christian theologians who vocally oppose physicalism believe that Jesus' human nature died, but not his divine nature. Mm. And so just, I mean, if you're counting orthodoxy in terms of what's mainstream, of course it's orthodox. I don't think it should be allowed to be considered orthodox. <laughs> if you maintain that Jesus' humanity died, but his immaterial divine self continued to live on, then what you've affirmed, I don't think is Nestorianism, but it's Apollinarianism, which is just as bad by historical terms. Now, that's the historical term for the heresy, that this immaterial self was the divine part. But the physical body was the human part. And so in historical terms, I don't think it should get away with being considered orthodox. Now, of course, somebody might simpl simply bite the bullet and affirm that. Okay, look, uh, I can't talk you out of it necessarily. A lot of evangelical dualists, without realizing it, do affirm that, do affirm yeah. Apollinarianism. They talk about Jesus as though an immaterial divine being entered a human body like a puppet. Yeah. Kept it alive until the crucifixion and then left, returning at the resurrection. And so it feels natural for them to speak that way, not realizing that they would have been considered outside of the church once upon a time for saying that. Well, sure. Yeah, that's a good point. And, but even if you don't think this should be considered orthodox, would you agree that it's no less orthodox than what it seems like many dualist theologians do affirm. I mean, you, you a good point, in fact, is, is R.C. Sproul. He says that to believe that God himself suffered death on the cross would be to step over the edge into serious heresy. Um, you know, he says that only the human nature died and that the divine nature didn't. And, and there are a number of theologians that think this. And so I guess what, what the question I have is, even if you don't think that this should be considered orthodox, nevertheless, most dualists do think that something akin to this possibility is orthodox. So is, is this, is this, could a physic, is a physicalist any less orthodox by, a, if they were to affirm this position? Am I uh, making any I sense? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, I, I realize that physicalism isn't the historically orthodox view, but I think that, um, given the way that so many dualists like Sproul, um, describe the death of Christ, they should be regarded as no more orthodox than I am. Right. And that's just because they basically separate the natures of Christ. They say that after the death of Jesus, what you have is a, you have the, you have the person remaining, but you only have a divine nature because this human nature is, is no longer alive. And that separates the, the two natures in Christ and that is heresy. Yeah, that would seem to me to be the case. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to the second possibility then, uh, because I think this is where it really gets interesting and, and, and controversial. Um, and for now, what I want to do is put aside the, the, the physicalist's assumption that death means uh, unconsciousness and, and, and the dualist's assumption that death means conscious separation. Um, and, until I began really considering this issue, and even for some time afterwards, to even ask the question, can God die, seemed mm -hmm. utterly absurd to me. And, and, and while theologians like Sproul and, and others, uh, William, Craig, William Lane Craig, I think is one of them, might think it 
equally absurd. I was told recently that actually many Christians have historically affirmed that God the Son did in fact die, both in terms of his humanity and his deity. Is this true? Are there, are there notable dualist Christians throughout the centuries who have been comfortable saying something like that? Oh, oh, look, plenty of, of very mainstream Christian theologians have said this, just as plenty of mainstream theologians have denied it. So you're not going to put yourself into a fringe group by concluding that either option is true. You're going to find plenty of friends. So you, you don't run that risk. Martin Luther uh, is one who took the inseparability of the two natures in Christ, in my view, very seriously and appropriately so. And he maintained that the person died on the cross. The person who has two natures, human human and divine, died on the cross. And so both his natures died because the person died. Um, another great conservative Protestant thinker, uh, Guido Debray, he was a student of John Calvin and, and Beza, and he was the author of the Belgic Confessions, so a very conservative. Uh, he said of the two natures in Christ, and I quote, these two natures are so closely united in one person that they were not even separated by his death. Now, of course, Luther believed in soul sleep, so he ends up being the subject of the same criticism that I would be, <laughs> namely what happened to Jesus when he died. Mm. Um, so, I mean, I like Luther, though, so I'm in good company. Um, but as far as I know, Debray was the dualist. Now, I have no inclination to do a survey of history to see who stood on which side of the fence on, you know, which nature died and which one didn't. But, yeah, the short story is it's not historically odd or sectarian to say that the divine nature as well as the human nature suffered and died. Okay. Now, what do you, so before we look at the issues which might, in the eyes of some anyway, call into question the orthodoxy of this view, um, what, what do you make of Jesus' statement in John 2.19 that he would raise his body back up, or in John 10.18 where he says he has the authority to take his life up again? It, it would seem to at least some, and I'll admit that it kind of seems like this to me on the surface, for Christ to mm. raise his own body up and take up his life again, wouldn't this require that he be conscious while dead in the tomb so that he could do those things? Yeah. Yeah, and I've heard that a few times. I mean, the, you're thinking of the passage where Jesus says, tear down this temple, and in three days I'm going to raise it up. Right. Is that the one? Yeah. Well, that's one of the two, yeah. But same basic idea. Yeah, but any, any statement to that effect kind of kind of has or seems to have the same implication. Um, I think that, and this, this may seem naively literal to some, but if you are lying down, if you are dead, and then God makes you alive again, you will... And, and the temple refers to your body, what do you do? Well, you raise it up. And how do you raise it up? By literally rising from the dead. Mm. Now, that may seem a little contrived, but let me, let me, let me perhaps give a counterclaim to okay. these ones. Numerous passages of scripture say that God raised Jesus from the dead. Where Jesus, and, and they use the passive uh, description of Jesus in, in his resurrection, that God raised him from the dead. If you look at the sermon on the day of Pentecost, where uh, Peter is telling people about what happened to Jesus in contrast to what happened to King David. He's, God raised him up and gave him the highest place. And yet you see you know, things like those in, in John's Gospel where you know, I have the authority to do this and to do that. Look, at the end of the day, what are you going to make of it? Well, I make of it that God raised Jesus from the dead. By that, I basically mean that God the Father raised Jesus from the dead and that in doing so, he gave Jesus the authority to take his life back. Okay. That's, I mean, that may sound like I'm biting the bullet. Maybe I am, but I have to make sense of it somehow. No, I, I don't think that is uh, any less sensible than the way that it might seem to sound on the surface. And I bet you that if we were to uh, go through the scriptures, we could find similar examples where, uh, I mean, the, at most, this is idiomatic language of, of you know, taking, raising your temple up or, or taking up your life again. I don't think that there's anything in the text that demands 
that this literally means that his that the son of God was conscious and raised his own body up and then entered back into it or something like that. That would seem yeah. kind of. I mean, I'll admit that it sounds that way, but this is one where I, I guess I appeal to the, the analogy of faith, <laughs> you know, I appeal <laughs> to the wider body of biblical teaching, uh, very handy sometimes, but it's a legitimate thing to do. And I think the overall biblical witness, both of, of, um, of the scripture and the early church is that God raised Jesus from the dead. Okay. Now, so, so this is where, Things are going to get down, uh, you know, sort of down and dirty, and, and I'm sure you've got a lot of comments prepared for these. Um, these are the arguments that I've come across and that you've been presented with that question the orthodoxy of this idea that God the Son died. Um, and, and the first one that I want to talk about um, is the issue of God's immortality. Uh, one of the reasons that I've always thought it absurd to ask if God can die is because Scripture does seem to present a God who is immortal and incapable of death. We've got statements in 1 Timothy 1.17 that God is immortal, 1 Timothy 6.16 that says he alone possesses immortality, Hebrews 7.16 says that Jesus arose as a high priest after Melchizedek because of his indestructible life, and then God says, I am who I am in Exodus 3.14, and he uses a form of uh, the word hayah, if I'm pronouncing that right, which means to be or to exist, and, and as I'm sure you know, several commentators have argued that this suggests that life is an inherent essential quality of God's being, that, that God is by his very nature. Now, I've gone on for a while, but the question I have for you is, how could such an immortal God, or at least a God described as immortal in the scriptures, um, how could such a God die? Yeah, that's, that is a good question. I mean, it, 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 it combines with, and I'm going to combine it with, uh, the question of immutability, because if you've got an immortal being that dies, then presumably you've got a change in God, hmm. which undermines the, the, the idea of immutability or God's inchangeability. So I will address them both together. That's fine with me, but do you mind me citing some verses that people might raise when they try to prove God's immutability just just for sake of you know uh, thoroughness yeah go for it yep, okay no so uh, Psalm 102:26 says that the Lord will change the heavens and the earth like clothing but that he remains the same Malachi 3 6 says I the Lord do not change James 1:17 says that God, uh, with God there is no variation Romans 1:23 says God is incorruptible and Hebrews 13:8 says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever those are those are the verses I found people would use to prove the immutability of God. Yeah. I could, um, I'll start by quoting a hymn, (laughs) which is not the way to do it, of course, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think the hymn writers got it right when they said, and can it be the immortal died in the sense that, wait a minute, this makes no sense. Mm. How could, how could the death of Christ ever have come about? Or, you know, how the same, same hymn also says, how can it be that thou, my God should die for me? So again, you've, you've got the divine nature dying there, but I think, when you talk about uh, talk about this in a trinitarian sense you've got to say okay well first of all what is required of any defensible model of the trinity mm. and i think uh, millard erickson is actually one of well, i don't know about one of the best but he's he's one of the people that i really like in in describing um the doctrine of the trinity how to formulate it and how to defend it and he says this, he says that there are five essential elements that any doctrine of the Trinity uh, should have. And I am coming to the question of immortality, <laughs> but I'm getting there in a roundabout way. He says, first of all, you've got to have the unity of God. There's only one God. There's not more than one God. Um, you've got to have the true deity of each of the three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. They're genuinely and fully God. Uh, you've got to have the fact that 
When we say that God is three and God is one, we don't mean that in exactly the same respect. Otherwise, we'd simply be contradicting ourselves. Right. Number four, the Trinity is eternal. There has always been, or there have always been three, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all of them have always been divine. You know, they none of them were created in time, in other words. Right. And none of them ever became divine. So that rules out, you know, things like adoptionism and what have you. Um, number five, and this is going to be the really important part, the function of one member of the Trinity may for a time be subordinate to one or both of the other members, but that does not mean that he is in any way inferior in essence. And number six, and this is the, the thing I appeal to when I get stuck, in the final analysis, the Trinity is incomprehensible. <laughs> um, now, I think that my view of Jesus Christ, the person actually dying, doesn't violate any of this, at least not overtly. There's still only one God. Each person is still divine. Threeness and oneness are still not in the same respect. They're all uncreated and divine from eternity past. You know, I reject adoptionism and anything like it. They can function in a way subordinate to each other, and that's crucial. And the relationship is still, in some sense, incomprehensible. It's point five that, that I'm really going to be looking at. It's not not just in regard to the death of God in Christ, but the incarnation period. Now, you mentioned the fact that uh, God the Son became mortal, but the Spirit and the Father, well, they didn't become mortal. So how does this not you know, undermine the Trinity somehow? Hmm. But it, it's true. I am saying that. I am saying that the Son became mortal, but the Father and the Spirit didn't. But... It's also true that God the Son became limited in knowledge. Now, isn't it essential to God that he be all-knowing? His Father didn't become limited in knowledge. Remember in Matthew 24 when Jesus said that humans didn't know when he would return, nor the angels, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, right. in, in talking about the Son and the Father, he's directly contrasting relationships. So he's di- directly contrasting persons within the Trinity, the Son, God the Son, and the Father. Um, and to say that one of them knew something, that the other didn't, uh, could offend some people's sense of um, all the persons of the Godhead sharing all the essential attributes, like immortality. Uh, I think that a good understanding of the Trinity doesn't require us to think that everything done by one member of the Trinity must therefore also be done by the others as well. Now, if we were Unitarians, like modalists, you know, who thought that there's really just one person, then okay, we have to think that every person has everything in common in every sense. But we right. don't. You know, we think that there are actually three different people. That's part of the essential uh, structure of the doctrine. I think the stronger point to make against my view is not so much that um, God the Son became mortal. It's to do with the way that, that my calling him mortal and saying that he died affects and undermines his relationship with his father. That's the really serious objection to my point of view. But I will say a little bit more about immutability and immortality before I come to that. Okay. The issue of God's being eternal, you know, his eternality, is yeah. quite simple to deal with. That. That, that's, that's another one I was going to ask you about. I've got passages for that as and, well. And it's all involved. I mean, <laughs> okay. God being immortal, God being eternal. I mean, some people might even use those things synonymously. But, I mean, the co-eternality of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit is famously summed up with this formula, the Father from eternity, the Son from eternity, and the Holy Spirit from eternity. Now, the whole point of saying from eternity was to stress that none of these three ever began to exist as a created being. That's what it meant. It was terminology really aimed at combating two claims. The first was the claim of the Arians, who followed Arius in saying that God the Father had been from all eternity, but not the Son. 
God the Father created the sun at some point, created the sun at some point in the past. And this statement says no. Jesus is co-eternal with his Father, not a creation of the Father. And so when the Arians claimed there was a time when he was not, speaking of Jesus, they meant that he hadn't always existed in eternity past. Right. The orthodox view is, no, in fact, he has. That's the doctrine of Christ's co-eternity with the Father. So you can see right away that I'm not saying anything that should call that into question. Uh, immutability, which is also tied up with his immortality, I think, is a little bit harder. But first I want to say something about how uh, a particular spin on immutability can be used to get us into trouble. Okay. A Christology, and I'm, I'm quoting now from... Uh, a well-known 20th century Lutheran theologian named Paul Althaus, he said, and I quote, Christology must be done in light of the cross. In the, the full, sorry, the full and undiminished deity of God is to be found in the helplessness, in the final agony of the crucified Jesus at the point where no, quote-unquote, divine nature is to be seen. In faith in Jesus Christ, we recognize as a law of the life of God himself, a saying of the Lord, which Paul applied to his own life, my strength is made perfect in weakness. Of course, the old idea of the immutability of God, and I'm still quoting from Paul Althaus here, mm-hmm. shatters on this recognition. Christology must take seriously the fact that God himself really enters into the suffering of the Son, and in so doing is and remains completely God. The divine miracle cannot be rationalized by a theory which makes God present and and active in Jesus Christ only so long as the limits of being human, as we understand it, are not crossed. The Godhead is there, hidden under the manhood, only open to faith and not to sight. It is therefore beyond any possibility of a theory that this is the case, that God enters into the hiddenness of his Godhead beneath the human nature is kenosis. That's the word that I was building up to there. (laughs) Kenosis is the idea that God in Christ empties himself and sets aside so much of what he has a right to, including immortality, including omniscience, including glory, respect, and so many things, honor. Uh, He simply chooses to give them up. Uh, Jürgen Moltmann, in his master 20th century work, The Crucified God, uh, contrasts earlier non-Christian pagan forms of theism with biblical Christianity, saying, and I quote, God cannot suffer, God cannot die, says theism, by which he means the kind of theism I was just talking about, in order to bring suffering, mortal being under his protection. God suffered in the suffering of Jesus. God died on the cross of Christ, says Christian faith, so that we might live and rise again in his future. So God actually took upon himself things that are basically human and not divine. Now there is a sense in which all of this, coming from theologians who were themselves ardent Trinitarians, Althaus is a Trinitarian, was a Trinitarian, likewise with Moltmann, committed Trinitarian, very orthodox in that sense. There's a sense in which what they're saying undermines immutability. Did God the Son know the fear of death from all eternity? Did he know what it was like to suffer from all eternity? Did he know what it was like to be able to ask his father, why have you forsaken me from all eternity? Well, no. I think the answer has to be no. Mm. If you set up a doctrine of immutability where there is nothing true of God today that was not true of God from all eternity, then you're creating a doomed doctrine because that couldn't possibly be true. Because here's a proposition about God. God has two creatures, Chris Date and Glenn Peoples. 
<laughs> that wasn't true of God 40 years ago, let alone from eternity past. More seriously, speaking of God the Father and his Son, Paul wrote in Second Corinthians that, and I quote, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Now did God the Father make his Son who knew no sin to be sin from all eternity? No. We have to say no, of course not. When the Bible says that God doesn't change then, it's an obvious mistake to think that this is true in every possible sense of those words. It has to be false. God's character, God's nature doesn't change, and that is what I think he's getting at when he says, look, the seasons change, you may change, but I will never change. I think he's saying, it's, it's basically a way of saying that I am absolutely dependable. Trustworthy. I will never, I'm, yeah, trustworthy. I don't break my promises. I don't turn around and become some nasty person you weren't expecting. I've told you what I am like. I never lie. I keep my covenant. These are the things that God is getting at when he says that he never changes. Now, the <laughs> earlier point about uh, the break in the relationship between the Father and Son and Spirit is an interesting challenge, and we'll, you know, we may say more about that. But I don't think the objections about eternality and immutability, even immortality, really get off the ground. We have to affirm something that is offensive and almost absurd when we say that God became man and died in our place. We just have to. Because, I mean, God taking the dishonorable place that belongs to human beings is something that is not fitting for God. Neither is death. But that's what God did. Yeah. Well, let me, before we get into what you just uh, alluded to, a couple follow-up questions I have. One is, um, you, what, could we go a little bit further when we talk about immutability to say that in whatever sense it is true that God changes, it's only because he wills to do so? Is that possible? I mean, is that is that fair to say? In other words, God cannot be killed if he chooses not to be. Would that be fair? I think we have to say something like that. Okay. I mean, I mean, there is a sense in which God, I mean, obviously God still existed when Jesus was dead because we don't believe that the Trinity died. Um so, that, so, but it, yeah, I know what you mean. The person of the Son of God um, did not have to die. You know, he did not have to accept the the finitude, the limitations of mortality, but he chose to do so. Otherwise, it could never have happened. So, yeah, I basically agree with what you're saying. Okay. Now, the other question is, um, and I, I think this is important to at least address. When when you were, um, wh- one of the points that you made in in defending the idea that God could have uh, become mortal. Um, was that he appears to have uh, given up the ability to have omniscience? You know, when 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 Christ said that not even the Son of Man knows when when I'm going to come. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, as you no doubt are aware, though, uh, many Christians will actually try and say, well, yes, God the Son as deity did continue to know that. It was only in his human nature that he was unaware of this. Why is that not uh, a sufficient? explanation for how it was that Jesus could say, not even I know when I'm coming back. Well, look, if if it were true, then it would be a sufficient explanation, but I see no reason to think that it's true. Um, I mean, I think the scripture is clear that God, sorry, Jesus, who was in the very form God, didn't consider that equality something that he had to hang on to, but he took the form of being a human. Um, I mean, if you had some... Yeah, insatiable motivation to say that God continued to be omniscient in Jesus. So Jesus continued to be omniscient as man. You could find a way of, of saying that. I don't think it would be a very natural way to read those passages. I mean, I think that when Jesus says no, the Father knows it, but the Son doesn't, when we usually talk about Father and Son, we're talking about persons of the Trinity. Hmm. 
Uh, I think that it would be simply contrived to say that Jesus really meant the son's human nature doesn't know it, but the father only. Because then you'd, you'd say, well, why did, he exc- why did he not mention his divine nature? He's saying, who doesn't know this and who does know it? Well, he's saying, well, people don't know it. Angels don't know it. Heck, even the son doesn't know it. So he's talking about something higher than the angels when he talks about the son. I don't think he's talking about his human nature. I think about his, he's simply talking about himself. Okay. Okay. Well, now, you, you, you alluded to the question of um, uh, the changing of his nature and, and not the Father's and the Holy Spirit's, or at least I think that might have been what you were alluding to. And, and, and what mm. this gets to is uh, an objection that some people have made to physicalism on the grounds that it would violate uh, not just the immutability, eternality, and uh, immortality of God, but the, but the very Trinity itself. Because what they're going to say is that if, if the Son took upon himself the capacity to die, and then in fact did die, um, but the Father remained more uh, immortal and the Holy Spirit remained mortal, and both of them remained alive while the Son was dead, how, he, let me let me put it this way. This is the way that Edward Fudge mentioned it to me um, off the air when I interviewed him and we were talking afterwards. Um, he, he said that because he has at times leaned in the direction of physicalism, uh, a, deba- a debate opponent of his and, and friend at the same time, I think, once accused him of believing that for three days the Trinity became a binity. Mm. So, so how would you respond to this idea that if, if the Son became mortal and died, but the Father and Holy Spirit didn't, that somehow we've foregone the Trinity for something like a binity? Yeah. There are two reasons why a person might say that, depending on, on how they construe the, the, the Trinity. If they construe the Trinity primarily as a relationship, then they would say, look, Jesus, according to you, Glenn, ceased to relate to his father for three days. That violates the Trinity. Or they might, I think, simply in, in ontological terms and say, look, Jesus didn't exist for two days. So you're undermining the Trinity that way. And I think I could, well, I don't, I don't know how satisfying my answer will be, but let me <laughs> attempt to approach an answer to each of those um, very similar concerns. I think let's first of all talk about the relationship question. You know, that Jesus ceased to relate to his father. Okay. I think that this is perhaps the most persuasive point against my point of view. And I think the appropriate way to begin responding to this concern is not to deny the consequence, but to simply accept it. When we turn from the doctrine of the Trinity and to the doctrine of the atonement, we start to see why it had to be this way. What's the problem that fallen man faces? Ultimately, it's alienation from God. Now, sin, in fact, this is, I, know, I should know this, but this is an Old Testament verse, isn't it? Your <laughs> sin has placed a barrier between you and your God. Hmm. Um, we lose our relationship with God as a result. As you know, I take this all the way, and I say ultimately, I, I, I am an annihilationist, as you know. I say ultimately that we lose life itself in every sense, dying forever as we separate ourselves from God, who is the source of life. But, but we turn to Jesus, who we say, I say at least, I, I think you do as well, we say that Jesus stood in our place. Yes. The author of the book of Hebrews stresses this really emphatically. He says that he fully identified with us. He even says that he tasted death for us. He became like his brothers in every way, and he tasted death for us. That's the death that we deserve. And in identifying with those who are separated from our Father, Jesus underwent something blasphemous, something absolutely unthinkable and that he was cut off from the Father as well. And if you have a view of the Trinity that can't accommodate the cross in this profound and disturbing and, I think, thoroughly biblical way, then you need a new understanding of the Trinity. Um, Perhaps the way to think about the Trinity, then, is 
in terms of ontology. That it's possible in the incarnation for this unthinkable thing to happen to the relationship between God and his Father. Well, what about the ontological objection to what I'm saying? That I would have to say that Jesus ceased to exist for two days. And so, related or not, heck, he's not even there. So you've only got two beings. I mean, you know, two persons in the one, in the one God. You've got, um, you know, the Father and the Spirit. Well, this, this may be a bit unusual in some people's thinking just because they don't think like a physicalist. But let's call to mind Peter's public sermon on the day of Pentecost recorded in Acts chapter 2. He quoted from the psalmist, he says it was David, who said to God, and I quote, You will not abandon me to the, to the grave. You will not allow your Holy One to see decay. All right, that's a well-known saying in Acts 2.27. Some people in, in days gone by, and still today, depending on which translation they use, get tripped up by unhelpful translations like, Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a bad, bad translation. <laughs> Just don't use that translation. A little familiarity with Old Testament Hebrew quickly shows that my soul, or my nefesh, is just a personal pronoun meaning me, especially right. in the Psalms. Just like your soul, his soul, her soul just means you, him, and her, and so on. And you don't have Using to, word, and you don't have to be a physicalist to acknowledge that that's in fact how the word is often used. Oh, absolutely. I mean, anyone who, who is familiar with Old Testament Hebrew knows that. That's just obviously true. Right. Using the word hell here was, was a terribly misleading translation as well of, of Hades or Sheol in the Old Testament. And the context of Acts 2 shows that Peter is just talking about graves. Mm. I think the NIV got it right. <laughs> you know, you may want to play, play back me saying that because it's not often <laughs> I will necessarily say that. But the NIV got it right here. It just means you will not leave me in the grave and you won't let me rot. Mm. Simple as that. As Peter points out, that doesn't apply to David because he says his grave, his tomb, as the word translated there, tomb, his tomb is still with us to this day. And look, David's still inside the tomb. He's well and truly decayed and rotted away, but not Jesus. Now, for some reason, Peter found it important to stress this, that Jesus didn't see corruption. Now, of course, if Peter had held to a dualistic portrait of humanity and, and consequently to a dualistic portrait of Christ, who was human, then this would be a non-issue, of course. It wouldn't have mattered whether or not the body of Jesus remained intact in order to preserve the idea of the persistence of the God-man, Jesus Christ. Because you could say, well, his divine soul, or even a soul that was both divine and human, could simply have lived on and provided this continuity, in inhabit, or perhaps in the future inhabiting a new and unrelated body. But Jesus, according to me, didn't have that view of humanity. And that is why this was so important to him. He had to say, look, this was speaking of Jesus, who God preserved from decay and rescued him from death before that happened, raising him to life again. Why was that important for the Trinity? Well, I think if you construe persons in a physical sense, you can see why it was important. Because there is still some sense, albeit an almost unrecognizable sense in which <laughs> Jesus did still exist. Because Jesus, were he able to speak in death, would have said, you will not abandon me to the grave and you will not allow me to see corruption, but you will deliver me. And that's exactly what took place. Yeah. So so this kind of goes back to the question I asked you earlier when I asked if the, if death means non-existence. You said then, and this is what I think you're trying to say now, that when the person dies, they don't immediately cease to exist. They might in time if they decay away. 
Um, but for those three days when his, when he was preserved in the tomb, the son of God did not cease to exist, even if he was fully and truly dead. And so therefore the Trinity didn't become a binity. It's just that one of the people in the Trinity, uh, was dead, which as we've already acknowledged, many theologians, including dualist ones have had no problem affirming. Is, is that right? Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, and this is kind of a shocking thing to admit, but if it came down to it, and I became persuaded that when a person is physically dead and not conscious at all, then they didn't really exist, I would probably bite the bullet and say that, in fact, for two days there was no third person. And that's just because I think that the cross and the atonement is the center of the Christian faith. And I don't th- – I mean, I, I that wouldn't undermine the, the co-eternality of the Son. I don't think – I mean, I think you could still have a doctrine that you could defensively call the Trinity – you would just have to acknowledge that the cross was was a cosmic tragedy of unspeakable proportions. Hmm. Okay. Okay, well, I, I think that uh, up to this point we've talked a lot about this possibility that Christ as God could have died, and um, you know, you've given me a lot to chew on, and I think my listeners a, a lot to chew on, but there is one more question which might have more properly gone in between the discussion about death and non-existence, and that's the issue of unconsciousness. Um I suppose that those dualists that we've talked about who are comfortable saying that God died in Christ are comfortable doing so because they think that death just means separation but not unconsciousness, whereas, as you've admitted, um, a physicalist's understanding would involve unconsciousness in the grave. Now, I guess the question I would have for you is, is is consciousness an essential characteristic of God's nature? Uh, And and if one person of the Trinity were to lose consciousness in death, doesn't this, isn't this the kind of fundamental change in, in the nature of God shared by other persons? I mean, do you think there's a problem with the idea that Christ was unconscious um, in death while while the other people in the Trinity were not? Yeah. I I hear that question from time to time. I, I don't really think there is a problem. I think it's just a feature of kenosis that, you know, this God who emptied himself and set aside his natural capacities. I mean, think of a zygote. Yeah, a newly fertilized ovum in, mm. in, in the, in the uterus of the Virgin Mary. What's that conscious? Well, look, I, I'd be really hard pressed to think that, you know, God the Son, the divine nature anyway, looked on while his human nature got its act together. And, and, you know, no, I just think that <laughs> um, consciousness is something that, that Jesus was willing to forego. I mean, if, um, if you were to say creep up behind Jesus during one of his, his his sermons in Galilee or what have you and hit him over the head, he would have fallen unconscious. Mm. And he would, it's not like he would have been saying, "Look, come on, wake up, wake up! I, I need to I need to get back into the miracle working and the in the healing." He'd just be unconscious and he'd get up and say, "Who hit me?" Sure. Uh, and he probably wouldn't know who hit him. It's not like he would be you know omniscient. No, I mean, no, I, I don't think that that um, being conscious. 24-7 is, is something that needs to concern us. Or, or take, or take sleep, yep. for example. When, when Christ was asleep, I can't imagine, or at least I find it difficult to imagine that, that the, the, the Son of God sort of goes into his study at night while the body lays asleep in bed and he does his paperwork until his body wakes back up. I mean, that, it strikes me as absurd just now that I think about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, Jesus fully subjected himself to human limitations. I think that's, that's the best way to think of the incarnation. Otherwise, I mean, the word didn't really become flesh. He sort of became a bystander on some human journey that some body was involved in. Mm, okay. 
Well, uh, that's pretty much all that I had prepared, and, and, and we'll begin to wrap up. Last time you'll recall that I asked you to give us a sort of parting message, and, and I want to ask you to do the same, th- same thing this time, but what I'd like you to do is specifically talk to two groups of people. Um, those like a friend of mine that you're familiar with who insists that because of these Christological in, uh, implications we've talked about that therefore physicalism is a heresy. And the second group of people are those like me who are s- – are seriously considering physicalism, but for better or for worse, are sort of fearful of being labeled a heretic. And I'm not defending my fear. I'm just saying, for those of us who do have a little bit of problem with the idea of being labeled a heretic, what would you say to these two groups of people? Yeah, for those people who happen to have a problem with being called a heretic, <laughs> which is probably most of them. Um, okay, here's, here's something to leave you with. Recall earlier that I was talking about God the Son literally fully dying, although I wasn't necessarily comfortable with the language of non-existence, and I wanted to defend the sense that uh, God the Son dead could still be said to exist in some way. Anyone who is aghast at this, anyone who prizes the idea of being orthodox with a small o, who is aghast at me saying that, I think would be even more shocked were they to read what is perhaps my favorite piece of theological writing of all time ever put to paper, that is the work of St. Athanasius on the incarnation of the word. And in it, he paints an historical picture of salvation. Humanity, he says, was created by God to bear the image of the word, which is a reference to Christ. However, by turning from God, that image was fading away. And human beings, this is his language, Athanasius' language, human beings were turning back into their natural state, which is non-existence. They would become everlastingly bereft even of being itself, he said, and they would disintegrate. So already he's in trouble with, <laughs> with a number of your listeners. But And I think he's in trouble with himself. I think he's not always consistent on this point, but he's blatant in his work on the incarnation. But God, he says, did not let us sink back into destruction. And I'm deliberately using his phrases. He talks about sinking back into destruction whence we came, i.e. nothing. He had to do something. God had to do something or God's handiwork would literally be done away with, which is a horrific outcome unworthy of God, says Athanasius. The word, he says, and I quote now, not from the incarnation, but from one of his other letters, his his festal letters, says, and I quote, the word became incarnate for our sakes that he might offer himself to the Father in our stead and redeem us through his oblation and sacrifice. Now, in spite of the absolute clarity and force of these words, Athanasius at times, at times, says things that I think contradict them, saying that, well, actually the word didn't really offer himself at all. He offered a body. The word took a body and offered that. So I don't want to say that what I'm presenting is Athanasius' consistent view, Mm. but just put together some of the clear, emphatic claims that he definitely made, and you see where it leads. He says, death for us meant losing the divine image and lapsing into to non-existence. He is explicit on that. And he also says the word became incarnate for our sakes to offer himself in our place, mm. enduring what we should have endured. Where does that lead? I mean, I'm not willing to say out, I mean, I am going to say it out loud, but <laughs> that, that, that leads to saying that the word ceased to exist. I mean, right. this is Athanasius. My goodness. I mean, that's unbelievable. That's a lot closer to talking about the non-existence of the Son of God than I'm prepared to go. Sure. So if anything, perhaps your listeners who are not kindly disposed to me 
will at least be willing to hear what I have to say uh, as a proposal less shocking than what has been said by some very respectable and orthodox theologians. Right. And, and what about uh, to those of us who aren't as uh, adamantly opposed to your view but, but are nevertheless a little worried about what we might be labeled? I mean, just on a personal level, as somebody who's experienced this very thing, how would you, what would you say to those like me who, who might be a little bit worried about, you know, what people are going to think yeah, of number us? Number one, when that happens, you quote Athanasius. Okay. <laughs> so, look what this guy said. Um, but number two, I mean, the emphasis that you need to come back with is always that we need to strip our faith to the biblical essentials. Mm. Um, I mean, it, it's true that the Bible doesn't say everything there is to say about everything. But even slightly beyond that, you can still affirm that the word is co-eternal with the Father. That's not overtly stated in Scripture, but I think it's true. And you can defend yourself by saying that. Um, you can say that you affirm all of uh, Erickson's six essential features of any defensible doctrine of the Trinity. Um, ultimately, if someone has made up their mind that the, that a dualistic portrait of the person of Christ is required for orthodoxy, you will not win them over. Because you, I mean, if, if you don't hold that view, then you don't hold that view. The best that you should say to them is, um, it is not required for a biblical portrait of Christ, and it should not be required for orthodoxy. And at the end of the day, if those who uh, carry the flag of orthodoxy insist on, def- on defining it in a way that excludes your belief, then, and this is a terrible thing to say in, 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 the, in the minds of some people, you should be more concerned about what is true than what is orthodox. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. You know, I, uh, I, I've, I've quoted this a number of times, um, many different interviews that I've given. Um, it, it amazes me how uh, frequently this is appropriate. And, and what's ironic about me uh, giving this quote that I'm about to give is that it comes from somebody who probably would be very adamantly opposed to the view that, that you've presented today, which is James White. He, he's often said that those who are, those who deny um, that they have traditions are those most blind to them. And it seems to me the more I examine this issue, that this claim of this position being uh, heretical or unorthodox really does just boil down to tradition and, and very little biblical justification. Um, and uh, I'm more interested in uh, the Bible than being blinded to my traditions. So Yeah. And I, I don't want people to think that I don't care about tradition or orthodoxy, because I do. You know, we stand on the shoulders of giants, as people say, and standards of orthodoxy were formulated for very good reasons. That's because there were people running around um, spouting off interpretations of Scripture that were fundamentally opposed, as far as the church could tell, to what the authors of Scripture intended to say. And so orthodoxy was was supposed to be about formulating the doctrine of Scripture, but that is what it must be about. It must never be about simply defending those orthodox formulations. It must be about... Uh, believing those formulations because they are seen as a defense of the teaching of Scripture. Yeah, I think that's good. And, you know, I would encourage anybody listening to go back and listen to the interview that you mentioned um, uh, with Edward Fudge because in both interviews that I gave with Edward Fudge, he saw, he quoted somebody that he didn't give away who this was, but it was a very prominent um, Protestant uh, theologian who literally said that he his his goal in life is to defend um, the creeds rather than um, orthodoxy where it's defined by the Bible. And that's a really uh, uh, sad state of affairs. Mm. Mm. Okay, well, I asked you this last time we talked, but for those who didn't listen to those episodes and don't want to go back and fast forward to the end of them, where can my listeners go to find your blog, your podcast? How can they contact you if they have any questions, that kind of stuff? Uh, well, my 
my blog and, and my podcast is at www.beretta-online.com. Uh, the name of the uh, blog and podcast is Say Hello to My Little Friend. If you search for Say Hello to My Little Friend just through Google uh, with my name, Glenn Peoples, you'll find it pretty quickly. Uh, or you can listen to the podcast through the iTunes store. Uh, just search for Say Hello to My Little Friend as the title. There is only one by that name. And... Or you can search for my name, Glenn, with two N's, Glenn Peoples, as the author, and that'll come up as a result. You can also contact me. Uh, I have a contact page at my blog where you can drop me a line. Uh, but by all means, come along and join in the ruckus and, and join in the comments. It'd be great to see you there. <laughs> great. All right. Well, thanks a lot. I really appreciate your time today, Glenn. You're very welcome. Thank you. Well, that was Dr. Glenn Peoples, and uh, he's given me a lot to think about. I hope that he's given you something to think about as well. I'm going to need some time to uh, listen to this and digest it before I um, am comfortable saying whether or not it's resolved the problem for me. Um, <clears throat> but there is one thing that I want to address because I wasn't prepared for it uh, in the interview. The, this, the issue was brought up of kenosis. Um, I would need to do a whole other episode on the issue of kenosis, uh, and maybe at one point I will do that. Uh, suffice it to say that there are a lot of people who um, have serious problems with the idea of kenosis. Uh, many would call it a, a heresy. Uh, the reason being, it is argued, if if God divested of himself, if the Son of God divested himself of any of his divine attributes, then he wouldn't be truly fully divine. Uh, and then the the doctrine of the hypostatic union would fall apart, the dual nature of Christ, that is. Uh, the question would be, how is his atoning work sufficient to atone for the sins of the world if if he isn't fully divine? So, so there's some real serious issues that need to be grappled there. But there is something that I want to read to you, which which I think is relevant. <laughs> uh, on the on the Kenosis page at CARM.org, C-A-R-M, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, um, they, uh, Matt, presumably, Matt Slick, said just that about the Kenosis theory, that it's a dangerous doctrine because it would make Jesus not fully divine, etc. However, listen to this. Now, I'm just going to read this, and then I'll comment on it afterwards. There is, however, a problem the Orthodox must deal with that the kenosis theory seems to more adequately address. Take Mark 13.32, for example. In it, Jesus said, But of that day or hour no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. If Jesus knew all things, as is implied in his divine nature, then why did he not know the day or hour of his own return? The answer is that Jesus cooperated with the limitations of humanity and voluntarily did not exercise his attribute of omniscience. He was still divine, but was moving and living completely as a man. Now, I want to read that relevant sentence one more time. The answer is that Jesus cooperated with the limitations of humanity and voluntarily did not exercise his attribute of omniscience. Now, that's being put up against kenosis uh, as being more orthodox. Uh, and, and the differentiation here is that whereas kenosis would say that God divested himself of omniscience in Christ... This view, what the author here, presumably Matt Slick, is saying is the orthodox view, would, would be that, that God the Son chose not to exercise his attribute of omniscience. Now, that might be a legitimate distinction. Uh, but the question becomes, why could that not also be said of the God, uh, God the Son's immortality? Uh, if let, let, me re, let, me read this, let, let me put this paragraph in the way that it might go if... Uh, if I were trying to apply it to the discussion that I had with Glenn today. Uh, if, if Jesus 
uh, if Jesus was immortal, as is implied in his divine nature, then how did he die? The answer is that God the Son cooperated with the limitations of humanity and voluntarily did not exercise his attribute of immortality. Is what, What's wrong with that? If we could say that about his omniscience, if we can say that it's actually true that Jesus did not know in any sense of the word uh, his, the, the day or hour of his own return and that, and, that, and that it can be considered orthodox because all he's doing is not exercising his attribute of omniscience, but he hasn't divested himself of it. If he can do that, why could it not also be said that he didn't divest himself of immortality, but he chose not to exercise it? I don't know. It's, it's something to think about. Well, that's it for this episode of the The Apologetics Podcast, and what I'm going to do to close out the episode is play the hymn that I believe Glenn alluded to toward the end of the interview there, um, and Can It Be That I Should Gain, is what it's called, I believe. And I would encourage you not to turn the episode off when, when I'm done talking, assuming you haven't already, <laughs> um, but, but actually listen to the hymn, listen to the words of the song, um, and as you ponder and study the issues that we've been talking about today, um, consider the words of this hymn, and 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 I, d I just wonder if if the words would take on a more profound meaning if we understood them in the way that uh, a physicalist might. It's just a thought. So, but either way, it's a beautiful hymn and uh, sung in a little bit of a contemporary fashion here that I happen to like. So, uh, I hope you enjoy. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain For me who him to death pursued Amazing love, how can it be That thou my God shouldst die for me Amazing love, how can it be That thou my God shouldst die
dread Jesus and all in him is mine Alive in him, my living head And clothed in